Welcome to Colonia Cast, episode 11. We're getting up there. Uh, this is on some of the other podcasts I listen to. Um, they say that uh, they say that episode 12 is where you get, and that's where the ones that last get to episode 12, and uh, and then it goes on from there. So we're one away. So I think I think we're doing okay. But uh, that's a lot of pressure. I feel like I'm going to be the downfall. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is going to be great. So. Yeah, so we're really excited. Today we've got Grover Brown, who's just recently started his uh, assistant professorship at Jacksonville State University in, I guess, North Central or, or Northeastern Alabama. I guess. We're right on the cusp of North Central, Northeastern, yeah. Okay, yeah, so right up there. Uh, and it, it's a cool spot. We were down there, uh, me and Jack and, and Wyatt were all down there in the summer uh, and and looking for turtles i mean we literally intercepted you i, I think what like the day less than 24 day hours less than 24 hours after i bought my house there is nothing <laughs> in, it. in fact y'all helped me move things into my house yeah so that was that was a fun time but but we found some turtles well, it was a good not time. even 24 hours we're already coming down to try and <laughs> Yeah, well, awesome. major shout out because I'm not sure. I don't know <laughs> a lot of people that would have been that generous, but that was yeah, yeah that's that was actually time. that was amazing. So, but yeah, so oh. we're we're excited. Um, we've in this the podcast in the past we've talked a lot about turtles from kind of around the world, uh, but we haven't focused as much on turtles of the southeast. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit more in some of uh, Grover's work, past work and uh, kind of even some of the major topics. Um, Grover's done some work with genetics and population genetics, so we're going to kind of go into that hopefully a little to give kind of a, a background maybe for some people that don't even really know where to start with that kind of thing. Um, so that will that'll be fun. Uh, but I guess I can just pass it over to well, I got to here. I got to plug the, the sponsors first just because we're in the beginning here. So uh, just a shout out to the Turtle Room. Uh, obviously, they've been very generous with providing some startup resources for us um, and have uh generously supported us and, and sponsored us so make sure to head over to the turtleroom.org to check out some of the the programs they have going on and 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 their social media accounts all at the turtle room youtube twitter instagram uh we're also hopefully looking to start a partnership or uh with the moorcroft conservation foundation um and it, we're not officially there yet but i'm, I'm in the workings of that uh, and and then <clears throat> i guess lastly we're really kind of uh grateful and happy with all the kind of comments and, and feedback we've been receiving um and it seems like the 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 podcast is being positively received so we're really excited about that so without further ado i'll pass it over to jack thompson here with our with our uh, just to get us started get the ball rolling all right so we asked this question to pretty much every guest but uh so why turtles what got you interested in turtles and that's a great place to start. And I think that I probably have a lot of similarities with other guests and that like, uh, at least the photographic evidence goes back to when I was four. So my dad found a box turtle in the yard when he was mowing the lawn. And I think it was like the first time I had ever seen a turtle. And I really don't think I've stopped thinking about turtles since that day. So I'm just one of those people who's been exceptionally lucky to have been able to follow my passion to where I am. So, you know, I was a turtle nerd in elementary school and high school and college and beyond so uh basically my first exposure was hook line and sinker 
yeah that's it's it's pretty there's like a pattern the more people we interview the more we find that the stories are very similar of how everybody exactly. starts like that's actually very similar to how mine started we would find box turtles in my backyard and eventually ended up with red-eared sliders as pets and like yeah going back i mean there's just something so i mean this is something so mesmerizing about them right and i i can't explain it but it was very impactful um and so i like i said been super lucky and i i don't know if y'all are going to ask i guess my background i don't know if that's kind of included in the question but go like, ahead yeah, yeah no, like the development of turtles throughout my life so to speak yeah yeah so um i like i said was super lucky to be able to follow my passion to where i am now so uh in high school you know life is just a s string of happy coincidences right i had a zoology professor at my high school who was actually a turtle nerd so when all my teachers inevitably found out about my passion for turtles, I was like, well, you need to go talk to this guy. He did his master's on them. And he actually did his master's up in Michigan on the George Reserve with Landings Turtles with Justin Congdon. So, you know, that very long-term ecological research project that they had from about the 60s to, I guess it would have been 2007 or 2008. And so this professor or this teacher at my high school was like, well, we still, you know, do this project every summer. Do you want to come up for a week or so and just kind of get experience in the field? And I was like, well, heck yeah. So as a high school student, I kind of got to see what it was to have a career in turtle biology. It was a foreign concept to me, right? Uh, and so it was my first time on a plane, uh, really first time outside of like neighboring states. And so I got to go up and be a part of this, this project and learn from Justin himself. And go out and look for landings turtles and uh, snapping turtles and painted turtles all day. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. And so I was completely sold. And so it was kind of, that was the end of my junior year over the summer. And so senior year, when it came to looking for colleges, I was like, I want to pursue this. And so I started looking for programs uh, that would facilitate that. And so uh, being from Georgia and um, uh being from Georgia, I applied to the University of Georgia, which has a really strong program. They have an ecology school. There's been a lot of uh, great research done there. Justin Congdon, uh, of course, had uh, been a uh, research biologist within, uh, I think, the ecology school there, as well as with Gibbons and Kurt Buhlman. So big turtle names, right, for the Southeast. So it was a really good fit uh, and got great experience in my undergrad. I was mostly working with salamanders because... Um, one of my mentors there was Dr. John Mayers, and I did get to play with some turtles along the way. So got some internships with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and got to do some sea turtle stuff on the coast and Georgia Department of Natural Resources doing bog turtle work and hellbender work in northeast Georgia. Um, and then uh, after I graduated, I actually moved abroad. So I went to Vietnam, lived there for a year and got to work with turtles and came back and started grad school. And one thing led to another. And here we are. So kind of a long background. Sorry if that's not what y'all are interested in, but yeah, that was my I mean, I think, I think it's like good to hear like where everybody sort of like went in there, you know, how they like got from just being like a kid interested in turtles to whatever they're doing now, you know, just there's like not a, you know, a sort of concrete framework for getting into like turtle stuff. So it's good to hear from like everyone's experiences and what they've done. It is. And it's not something you have to be born with either. Some of the best turtle biologists I know were people that I took classes with who were just exposed to herpetology in, in college. 
And now they're these really incredible biologists. So don't feel that you're excluded if you hadn't had some lifelong passion. It's something you can develop. And I've seen it many times. And it is something that, you know, I am a first generation college student and I have mentored other students before uh, because I had no idea this career existed and I had no idea how to get to this career. So it is one of the things that helped me most in college was hearing from other graduate students. I was in a seminar where they had graduate students talk about the research, but not only the research, but like you said, Jason, getting into or how they got into that research and how they found their graduate program and how they developed their theses or their dissertations. And I found that to be some of the most helpful um, experiences of my college um, experience. So if any folks at home, let's be a plug. If y'all are, you know, high school kids like y'all, who have questions about some of that stuff, um, do let me know. Yeah, so I'm curious. They So they they stopped the long-term research at the ES George. I didn't realize that, but that... So I got to go the last year, like the last year as they were cleaning everything up. They went, they sold the Bronco that they'd used for the entirety of like the program. Uh, they still go back. Um, I think they still go back each year is not as intensive as it was. It used to be, you know, like SREL where you caught every single turtle entering and leaving that marsh. Uh, and they had, you know, just almost every turtle marked. Now they go back and they are still looking at some of the planting turtles. They're looking at the effects of autumn olive uh, on nesting habitat. So it's kind of taken over. So they're doing some experiment, experimental removal uh, and seeing how females, uh, uh, where they nest when it's experimentally removed because it just kind of shades out everything but they go back and they'll catch these turtles that are just ancient so some of like the og turtles that they marked back in the 60s it's just incredible i seem to recall a record like 83 year old blandings turtle something like that i'm sure there's a lot others that are kind of up there but that kind of long that kind of long-term research is just fascinating like you mentioned the srel the amount that you can do with that is incredible. I remember in, in Wits, uh, in the in, in Dr. Gibbons, the red-eared slider uh, ecology book, they talk about the pitfall tra traps that they literally surrounded one of the ponds there with. And, and they and just it, took that down like last week. I don't know if you saw that on social media. I saw that. Yeah, they, they just really? did take those down. Wow. <laughs> it's been and up for was... a long time. Yeah, that was like, it was up for decades and it was some of the seminal research on like chicken turtles and their ecology is really, really fascinating stuff. And it's yeah. rare too, right? I don't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Uh, but this is like one of the questions I get all the time. It's like, oh, how long do turtles live or this, that, and the other? And they ask these questions and it's like, we don't know. Like we didn't start studying these things until, you know, the mid 1900s. And I could spend my entire career tracking a single population and I'm only going to see a generation or two in some species, you know, I have to pass it off to my kids and then my grandkids. And it's going to be a hundred years before we answer some of these questions. Uh, and so it was, you know, again, pioneering research and laid the foundations of turtle ecology, right? Some of these long-term studies. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that slider book was written in the 90s and still the amount of it, the amount of information in there is, is incredible. I can't imagine kind of all the things that have come out of there just today. But, ecology uh, of the slider turtle. I think I have that. Um, yeah. Life history and ecology of the slider turtle. I have it on my bookshelf right there. 
There you go. Yeah, that's a classic one for anyone out there that that is looking for one. That that is a book that uh, I mean, it can get a little bit, I guess, information dense, but it's certainly something that's that's doable if you want to kind of put in the work to kind of understand that. But for some people, obviously, if you've gone through that, you might be able to pick up easier. But yeah, so I guess um, you mentioned some work that you did with bog turtles, but then so now kind of as you transitioned from undergrad to grad school, what did you start to focus on? Like what group of turtles? Uh, what were some of the questions that, that you asked there? Uh, specifically, like I know mud and musk turtles is one of your interests. Um, although you did express that you don't want to be like the guy that does it and, and more like holistic, right? Just all Southeastern turtles, but then also that's one of your focuses, right? It's oh, like, right. yeah. I mean, when people ask me my favorite turtle is probably going to be a mud and musk turtle. Um, and I mean, I love all turtles. I should say I love them all equally. And I, I do, but there's a very special place in my heart for some of the Southeastern kind of sternids. Um, yeah, I, after I got back from Vietnam, I applied to grad schools, um, and, uh, you know, applying to grad school comes in a few different flavors, right? You can apply to a program and kind of bring your own idea, uh, which is great because it kind of gives you that academic freedom. Uh, however, with that, you have to bring in your own funding, which can be uh, difficult because it kind of forces you to write grants, which is, I mean, good experience. Uh, and then you can also apply to fully funded positions, which are awesome because then you can hit the ground running and really get a lot out of your, your graduate degree. But I uh, was looking at schools in the Southeast, and um, I had, at that time, a really strong interest in gratomies as well, the map turtles. And so I had what I thought was kind of a cool project that I wanted to do for my master's. And one of the labs doing a lot of gratomies work at that time was at the University of Southern Mississippi, which, of course, is just a mecca, a mecca of turtle diversity. And... Um, so I applied to the program, got in, brought in my own ideas. And uh, logistically, the project that I wanted to do was going to be difficult and, and expensive, and we didn't have funds at the time. And so I kind of, you know, was flexible, which is another tidbit of advice I can give for folks who are starting grad school is to be flexible. Uh, and my advisor had a lot of experience in population genetics. And so I kind of shifted my project from this Gratzmi's focus to what I thought was going to be a cool um, Sternothrus or musk turtle focus um, and taking uh, a population genetics approach to looking at population structure across the razorback musk turtle, which like many of the Southeastern map turtles, you know, is pretty much lodic, uh, but the map turtles are very speciose, whereas razorback musk turtle occurs alongside these map turtles in these same drainages and is still considered one species. So I was curious to see what level of structure there was there. Uh, and I wrote a few grants and I was successful in getting those. So I was funding my own project and I was very, very fortunate. Um, I submitted a propo- proposal to the um, National Science Foundation, the GRFP, the Graduate, um, uh, let's see, GRFP, Graduate Research Fellowship Program. And it comes with three years of funding uh, and a very generous stipend. And I was awarded that in 2016. And so I was a year and a half into my project already. And so uh, my university was flexible in that let you, they let you shift or transition from a master's to a PhD student. And with three years of funding um, and a lot of ideas that I already had that I wanted to execute, it was a natural kind of transition. 
So I was very fortunate that I secured that funding and then kind of got to pursue not only the population genetics projects, but, but some other projects that I thought were really interesting. And I had been a kind of stern nerd for years before this. And that's why it was kind of like a natural, um, not progression, but it was, it was just a natural fit. It's like, why didn't I ever just think about this before? And so uh, I used to catch must turtles when I was in high school. That was my favorite thing to do. Uh, kind of like you, Jack, I know that uh, you love going and finding those odoratas. I used to go out and I'd take a fishing pole and I'd catch what we call a bram down here or uh, sunfish to the academic lapomus. And um, I would use the sunfish as bait and I'd bring in all these odoratas and I'd just fill up a bucket with them. It was my oh, favorite thing to do. And then when I discovered the striped neck musk turtles in the streams in North Georgia, I mean, there's just some of those beautiful habitat. Um, and I was like, this, this is just a cool group of turtles. And it surprised me. I didn't have an encyclopedic knowledge of turtles, but so it, it surprised me that striped neck musk turtles were also found in South Mississippi. And I was like, that's kind of weird. Cause like we have the razorbacks here. So like, what are, what's going on there? Cause the razorbacks are in the rivers. So where are the striped necks going to be? What, what habitat's left? And it took me a full year to kind of track them down and figure out where they actually were. Uh, and it was just a really cool um, ecology. So they kind of divide their habitat. So another chapter in my dissertation was looking at how they partition their lodic, or that is river and stream habitat between those two species. Because South Mississippi is kind of one of the only areas where those two species overlap in their ranges. And where they don't overlap, they're in everything. They're in like montane streams all the way down to the bayous and oxbow lakes. Uh, and that's true for both razorbacks and striped neck musk turtles. So it's like, why is it when they're together that they, I mean, how is it that they're able to co-occur together when independently they could cover all that terrain if they wanted to? So it was just, it was a lot of fun. I was very lucky um, in my graduate program to have, again, that academic freedom. I feel like I'm talking way too much. Y'all just interrupt. No, me. no, this is perfect. This is exactly what we wanted to Actually, it makes our jobs easier and, and we like that. Like we're here for you. So we want to hear as much as you want. Don't feel any don't feel any pressure to stop because we, we love to hear it. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I'm curious um, if you don't mind. I mean, if you don't want to, that's fine. But it just it, like talking a little bit more about that first project you did in grad school. Like, I guess this might be a good time too, just for. A lot of people, population genetics can be kind of a daunting thing. I think it's it's something that if if you don't if you haven't gone to school for it, you might not really know where to start in terms of understanding those concepts at a, at a kind of molecular level. Um, so I don't know if you want to just give like an overview of what sort of th that term kind of means. Like what are we looking at there? And then you also mentioned kind of looking at genetic structure, like what does that entail? So just for people that might not necessarily, that just gives kind of an overview of what that means. Okay, I'm gonna do my best. Uh, I am by no means a geneticist, um, but I love using different tools to answer what I think are interesting questions in turtle ecology, right? So again, play to the strengths of your advisors because they're gonna help you graduate, right? So. I was in a population genetics lab. My advisor was actually a fish geneticist. And what population genetics is, is it's looking at differences in allele frequencies. Now, 
we're going to backtrack a bit. I'm going to treat you like my one-on-one classes. I know y'all probably are familiar with this, but again, a little background for listeners. So alleles, right, are um, different copies of a gene. You can have genetic variation, you know, your A's, G's, C's, and T's. And so you can have a switch from an A to a G maybe, uh, on the same gene. And so we would call each of those copies of a gene an allele. You get one allele from mom and one allele from dad, right? So you're 50% your mother's DNA and 50% your dad's. And it's the same for turtles. And so these alleles will accrue over time because our DNA replication isn't perfect. It makes mistakes. And so you get these little point mutations. And these point mutations can be good, bad, or neutral. And so if they're good, they'll be selected for in a population. Maybe you make some new pigment and you blend it real good. That's an example of an advantageous mutation. They could be bad and lead to some disease and you could die and not you know, reproduce. So that mutation is going to be eliminated from the population or they can be neutral. And this is what a lot of people don't realize is that our DNA is filled with just a lot of fluff, we'll call it like just stuff that does nothing. We are, you know, the result of billions of years of evolution. And we have a lot of DNA, but only a small portion of it is actually coding. So we're just random chance, right? And one of the great things about this fluffy DNA, this DNA that does nothing, is that it actually mutates a little bit quicker because you can accrue those mutations. Uh, there's not going to be any sort of selection pressure. And you can use this to your advantage in population ecology or population genetics because um, you can use different uh, statistical techniques and analyses to infer uh, how long ago it was that two populations were connected or reproducing. Because gene flow uh, is this thing that homogenizes. It makes the allele frequencies within a population all the same. So if there's gene flow and even just very, very low levels of gene flow, you're not going to see any of what we call population structure. So there's no differentiation, no differences in allele frequencies. Say that this kind of goes back to your Hardy-Weinberg where you have you know, allele A is in 60% of individuals and allele B is in 40%. And then you have heterozygotes. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's genetic isolation and by random chance, uh, then, you know, if the population is split in two, they can kind of start in their own evolutionary trajectories just by random chance, random loss of alleles. We call this genetic drift, right? If you don't have an infinite population size, which no one does, uh, you start to see inbreeding depression and you can see the loss of some of these alleles over time, not based on the merit of say their genotype, but simply by chance, say there was a storm and it killed off half the individuals and you lost some of those rare alleles. Um, then you would see genetic differentiation between that population and another. And I know this is kind of getting boring, probably getting a little too technical. But what I was looking at is the razorback musk turtle and how the genetic makeup or the allele frequencies differed between what I was calling populations of razorback musk turtles, but different river drainages. So we know that the southeastern U.S. is a biodiversity hotspot. We know that the genus Gratzmes with its 14 species is a driver of turtle diversity here in the southeast. And it's because the Gratzmes are lodic species. They're highly aquatic. They're tied to the riverine. Uh, systems. They don't move around, say, like sliders might from one wetland to another. They require very specific environmental conditions. 
And they often nest like on the sandbars, right? Immediately adjacent to a river. So you're not getting map turtles moving, say, from one drainage to another. And so you've seen genetic isolation and it's been long enough to basically um, lead to distinct species that we have across the river drainages of the Southeast. And so my question is like, okay, well, in the Razorback Moss Turtle, we're in a lot of the same river drainages. We have a very similar ecology. I would argue all day that a mat turtle would be much better at dispersing than a Razorback Moss Turtle. I think that their levels of water loss can be far greater. And so I was curious to see, you know, in the Razorback Moss Turtle, how much differentiation there was across these uh, river drainages because they occur all the way from the Brazos and basically central, central Texas to the Pascagoula and Escataba River in extreme southeastern or southwestern Alabama. And this was the most fun uh, because it meant that I got to go and collect my samples because the Razorback Musk Turtle, even though it's got a broad distribution, even though it's a common species, uh, there were very few, there was very little representation in tissue museums across the Southeast, at least when I was um, in grad school. And that meant that I got to go collect them. So I went on these collecting trips, kind of like the old school herpetologists, where I just drove out to central Texas and set traps and got to catch a representative sample size of musk turtles from the Parasis drainage. Then I moved over to the Trinity. Then I moved over to the Neches and Sabine. And then I made my way to um oklahoma and arkansas up in the washington mountains if you ever get a chance those streams are absolutely gorgeous and I've seen the across across there. are so different jack knows what i'm talking about because the, the big the like, populations in arkansas those things are tanks they're awesome anyway back to population genetics i found a lot of structuring within the raceback musturals um and the highest level of structure the highest degree of differentiation was up in those kind of headwater streams of the, oh, sorry, the Wachita Mountains. And this is a biogeographical um, hotspot. So there's a number of other like crayfish and salamander and fish species um, that are particularly diverse in this region, uh, endemic to this region. And certainly the habitat is driving some of this because you've got the Mississippi embayment, which is just flat and mud. Uh, and then this mountain range um, uh, coming up from that. And so stream characteristics can be very different. So you can have kind of specialization to that montane habitat. And what was really neat is I found an old thesis. It wasn't published um, from I think like 1995 or so. And they were inferring genetic structure through morphological structure. And so, like I said, you can take these genetic data and you can visualize them in what we call ordination space. Basically, you create um, a plot and you look at uh, genetic distance. So the farther away two populations are on this plot, the greater the, the genetic distance. And so I had, you know, I think nine different populations I pulled from nine different river drainages. And this person in 1995 did the same thing. And what was so cool is we produced the same plot. So my genetic data corroborated her morphological data. And what was so neat was that both those Red River and Wachita River populations of the Wachita Mountains were not only morphologically distinct, they were genetically distinct. And this is where the field of population genetic comes, 
the, the field of population genetics comes together because when you are managing species common or endangered, you want to make sure that you are um, managing each population accordingly. Like you can't just move, say, we'll use the example of say there's like sliders that are rare somewhere, right? Um, so maybe there's a population of redder slider out in the middle of the desert that's its own distinct population, uh, has no gene flow, and it's getting rare. Well, you don't want to take like some Louisiana redder sliders and just be like, okay, well, we'll put this redder slider there to make them common again, right? Um, that population you want to manage differently because it's got um, its own locally adaptive alleles. And there's been a number of studies that show when you, you know, try to reintroduce from another population, uh, you muddy the genetics and you actually affect and often negatively affect the fitness or the reproductive output of that population by introducing these non-adaptive alleles. So when it comes to managing um, endangered or um, threatened species, you want to make sure that you're drawing from that local gene pool or promoting uh, or reintroducing um, genetically similar individuals. And so we have these classifications called ESUs evolutionarily significant units. And so in population genetics, you can define these ESUs based off of, and there's a paper that went into this, um, whether or not these populations are morphologically and genetically distinct. So a manuscript that I'm kind of working on right now is saying that, you know, there could be some evolutionarily significant units within the Razorback Must Turtle because my genetic data do corroborate these morphological data. Uh, and you can see and genetically tell um, these populations from one another. So uh, that was kind of, you, you asked, bring this all back about that first chapter, that first project of my dissertation. Uh, and that's kind of what it was looking at. Uh, and another cool application of these genetic tools is that you can actually uh, DNA fingerprint confiscated individuals. And that's definitely where the field is heading. So you ask, you know, what are we using population genetics for now? We are able to get range-wide sampling of a species and through some really cool genomic techniques uh, that have been developed in the past few years, um, it's gotten really cheap and easy to sequence individuals. And so um, J.B. Apodoka of Tangle Bank Conservation, he does a lot of this and it's awesome. So he can take the genetics or a genetic sample from a confiscated individual and with some resolution tell you, say, where a confiscated alligator snapping turtle came from. So really robust data sets that allow you to, again, uh, use genetic DNA fingerprinting. And you could potentially reintroduce that individual back into the wild. Because, again, Michael, as you know, uh, with some of the huge confiscations like, like Madagascar, uh, you want to get those animals back in the wild. Uh, and we see, you know, these huge confiscations of North American turtles now because the Southeast uh, or Southeast Asia is a vacuum. But it's hard, uh, and then it ends up being very expensive and very uh, labor-intensive, right, to manage thousands of confiscated individuals. And they're dying left and right, and so it's, you know, what do you do with them? And so this is kind of the cutting edge of population genetics, population genomics, is we can kind of sort of head in that direction. You know, give them a health check, make sure they're healthy, and we can find an area where we could potentially or feasibly reintroduce some of these confiscated individuals. I hope that that was like a. That was, that was perfect. Okay. I, I think everybody's going to love that when when this episode is is released. But 
That, that's, that's a great point, though. That's like a game changer because so many of those turtles, they don't know what to do with them. They just die after you get like hundreds or thousands of turtles, especially if they're like from another country or something. It's like where, we can't just dump these in the wild anywhere. Like and there's more one, than that. Like, and each adult is so valuable in population. And we, again, know that because yeah. of these long-term ecological studies, like each one of those is a miracle that survived. Baby turtles are nature's crunchy grapes, right? Everything eats them. They have to overcome wild odds to reach adulthood and so the loss of even a single turtle is devastating nevertheless thousands and so it's just you know with the what was it latensis that they confiscated they confiscated more yeah. um cyber latensis than they knew existed in the wild yeah like 2015 so, right like that was yeah i think around then that sounds yeah, right. like, that was yeah. so, that was a ridiculous statistic it was something like 90 percent of the whole species population had just been they caught that in time like right and they had they end up releasing them and they kept they kept like 10 percent of them for captive assurance colonies and stuff right like. but imagine you could release them and that's basically an entire species that's been extirpated now of course they made the right call because even if you don't know where they came from that's such a substantial part of the species you gotta get those things back out there mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's interesting i though so there's one other thing too uh in terms of like what you were looking at, I guess the different types of markers within kind of genetic. Right, right, right. And I would figure that you were using sort of like microsatellites for the question that you were asking. I, I guess so, you can maybe expand upon the difference a little bit, I guess. Absolutely. So yeah. again, so the field of genetics has grown so much in the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So it used to be, you know, they used allozymes. So things like proteins and electrophoresis, and then they kind of moved to, um, mini satellites and microsatellites. Uh, and then of course the field has progressed so much that now we're using genomic techniques and what we call SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms. So down to the single base pair. And my advisor, he was a little old school. Um, so he used microsatellites, which are very popular um, back in like the 2000s and uh, early 2010s. And they work. Uh, I mean, you're using the same assumptions you would with the SNP data. They're just a little more time intensive uh, and you don't get quite as high of a resolution image, right? As things like population genomics, we're using genomic sequencing. And so uh, that's where the field has been moving, it is moving and is opening up many new doors because of course with genomic data, when you're looking at the single nucleotide level, we have giga, uh, let's see, what is it? Our genome is something like 20 gigabases or something like that. So an obscene number of zeros. Um, which means that computationally, it's going to be very intensive. But of course, with the advent of supercomputers, uh, we're able to handle these massive data sets now. And one project that I'm working on right now is using phylogenomic approaches. So we will be using genomic data to disentangle the evolutionary history of some of the southeastern kind of sternids. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but yes, it's definitely where the field is heading. I use microsatellites because it's what I had available to me at the time. Um, but I still have all those genetic data. So if someone ever wanted to collaborate in the future, um, I still have all those samples and we could, you know, kind of get a even finer scale resolution of the trends in population structure across those drainages. That's cool. And that that's, I think one thing too, about like microsatellites is a bit different in terms of like, when I think about alleles of, of, I guess, protein coding genes, cause these are like you said, kind of part of the non-coding region. Yeah, this is the fluff. Yeah, I typically think of like, 
you know, the drivers for the difference between alleles as SNPs, like you said, it's just those little accumulation of differences between both alleles within an organism, I guess, but also within the population. But it's not necessarily length, whereas microsatellites, I guess the locus doesn't matter as much and you're just looking at length polymorphism or exactly. So with microsatellites, these are uh, tandem repeats of either dinucleotide, trinucleotide, tetranucleotide, et cetera. One, two, or, or sorry, two, three, or four uh, repeats of um, nucleotides. So for instance, I use mostly tetranucleotide repeats. So my fragment sizes would be four or eight or 12 or 16 or so forth and so on. And earlier on, you know, we could use these really high resolution gels to separate just a few nucleotides. So you could score them based on their size. And the way these microsatellite loci work is like, say that one of the repeats I was looking at was TTAA. So it would be tandem repeats of that. And it could be anywhere from 30 to 40 to 100 repeats of that. So TTAA, 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 it's a tongue twister. And for DNA polymerase, the little enzyme that makes DNA is a tongue twister too. So sometimes by chance, they accidentally add another TTAA in there. So it changes the length. It adds four nucleotides to that particular microsatellite. And so these mutate at a known rate, and that makes them really convenient. Uh, we know they're non-coding because it's just repeats of random nucleotides. And they're selectively neutral. And we test this before we use them because they can actually be close to a coding region. And then they're actually selected for, so you can't use them for analyses. But you can separate them out on what we call an acrylamide gel. And you can visualize the differences in the links um, and infer again, these population genetic statistics by scoring those based on their side and seeing their prevalence or the, the uh, frequency of those in a population. So that was, again, um, uh, they, they came right before things like genomic sequencing. So you're looking at, you know, four nucleotides, but now we're down to the single nucleotide polymorphisms. But with SNP data, you do the same thing. Um, you run uh, these analyses to make sure that they're selectively neutral so that they're not, they're not coming from an actual gene that's coding for something that's going to have natural selection acting on it because that's going to create less diversity right if there is something that's actually coding for some protein that you need to survive then everything's going to be the same it's going to be an a across the board because otherwise it's going to change the amino acid for that codon it's going to change the shape of that protein and that can have catastrophic consequences on the fitness of an individual. For instance, if you can't make ATP synthase, you're not going to live, right? So you want to make sure that you're picking SNPs from selectively neutral portions of kind of, again, the fluffy bits of DNA that we have, those non-coding portions. Again, I'm not a geneticist, so I had to like come up with really stupid or like really like dumbed down ways for me to understand it. So this is, this is my understanding of it. Y'all might have a more sophisticated, but this is where I am. It's perfect. I mean, you explain it in, in in a way that's comprehensive, but still simple enough for our listeners to understand. I think you did a really good job. Yeah. That's why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've listened to like podcasts and lectures before where 
there'll be someone and within the first five minutes they're just essentially defining allele frequency as the equation that's used and then start going into drift and and using the equation it's just it's extremely hard to follow if you don't have a pen and paper yeah, so yeah no, I think... yeah it's hard to follow but if you don't know what an allele is if you don't define an allele you know as a genetic variant then your sol it's like oh you start off not understanding so i mean some of those questions that, that freshman biology class and learning what a gene is and what an allele is and all that fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, to, I think it's interesting too, how you explain how alleles can change at the sort of, I guess, SNP level and at the nucleotide level, right? That's what the driver is for the change. I don't know if there's really a metric for how many nucleotide sort of changes, mutations need to occur for an allele to, to a new allele to enter the population or a new gene to evolve, I guess, if there's a metric for that, but that's kind of the driver overall. It is. And I mean, that's the driver. That's how we got from, you know, protozoan slime to where we are now, right? It's just absolute random changes, random mutations in our genetics is really fascinating. Uh, and that's something that you learn in your genetics course that these mutations do occur kind of at a set rate, something like one in a billion uh, nucleotides. But again, most of them are going to happen in these non-coding portions uh, of our DNA, and it makes no difference. Uh, and then again, if they do happen to occur in a coding portion and fold some new protein, because of course, DNA is just, we use it to make proteins. We are mostly proteinaceous. And so it might make some new beneficial protein. And that would be, of course, advantageous and hopefully be selected for slowly over time. And yeah. Well, I oh, think yeah. that that's good. And I guess the, the ultimate goal with population genetics, I guess, is sort of to understand how sort of populations evolve over time and how, and, and also kind of relatedness, right? But that kind of all factors yeah. in. Not, and not only that, you can, it's such a broad field. You know, biology is a huge field. Genetics is a huge field. Population genetics is so powerful and can do so much. You can look, the, look at the effect of topography on population genetics, right? In kind of a landscape genetics format, you can see how this river um, uh, limits gene flow from population A and population B. Uh, you can also get a, an estimate of population size. So say that historically, this is a robust population, but a hurricane came through and killed 90% of the individuals. And again, that's going to be kind of, it's not necessarily the fittest that survive, right? It's kind of the luckiest, the ones that might have been on the high ground. So it's this non-random selection. And so you only, you end up with a subset um, of the genetic makeup of that population, and then it expands back out. So that population could rebound. It could also go extinct, but it could rebound, but it's going to be less genetically diverse. And so you can use these tools to kind of assess that as well. And so one project that I'm kind of interested in recently, I made an Instagram post about it, is that we have in the Coosa River, well, the Coosa River actually has three graptomies, depending on where you are. So above the fall line, you have uh, the northern map turtle, Gratomys geographica, and the Alabama map turtle, Gratomys pulchra. And then once you hit the fall line, you can actually have a trifecta. You have those two species I just mentioned, but you're going to start to see a transition towards the black knob sawback, so Gratomys nigrinota. However, uh, where I live in Alabama, I'm not too far from the Coosa River, which has uh, been impounded since uh, it's basically been created has basically been made into a lake starting in the 1960s. Um, it was actually the largest mass extinction event in the past century because it's an incredibly diverse river system. And they changed it from a loadic system that flowed into a stagnant pool that 
you know, kind of um, killed off a lot of the, the, the mollusk diversity and freshwater fish diversity. But what it also does is it kind of homogenizes habitat, makes it all the same, makes it all kind of lake-like. And I found a population of Wachita map turtles, which are a common pet trade turtle, arriving in this particular section of the river. Um, by my count so far, they outnumber the natives 10 to 1. And what I think would be interesting is to use something like population genetics to estimate the founding population. So you can use these, these tools to look at net, net effective population size and maybe potentially get an estimate of how many turtles were introduced uh, to create this now reproductive population. Because I saw uh, individuals of all age classes from you know, little yearlings to full-grown females and full-grown adult males. So I don't think it's the typical one-hit wonders that you might see um, pop up on INAT sometimes, where it's like one's been released into a lake at a school. This is a reproductive population of an invasive map turtle species um, in a river segment. So hopefully, hopefully because the Coosa River is so impounded that they're going to just kind of be restricted to this section. Um, but it's something that I hope to, to kind of investigate moving forward. So huge application, huge application, um, in the field of population genetics. Those applications are like worldwide too. Like it just keeps expanding. What's that? I said it's worldwide too. Like it, it has applications literally everywhere. On oh, every everywhere. Country. Oh, absolutely. Do you think that like population genetics was created by the turtle field? Absolutely not. All this is kind of trickled down from medicine, right? So sequencing, the reason it's so um, uh, incredible is because the NIH, the National Institute of Health, has invested so heavily into it for things like cancer research, right? And then it's kind of like a little exaptation for us, right? We take their technology and apply it to our taxa. And so we've kind of, you know, used and piggybacked off of um, uh, human geneticists, right? to answer these questions. So it's, it's kind of neat in that regard, the trickle down effect. You kind of lose perspective because we, we use it in one specific way, but it's like, actually this was created decades ago for something entirely different. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely a fascinating thing. And the fact that you can sort of use just markers at kind of a molecular level and then abstract things like population size. And I even seem to recall in, in that slider book, they use, I guess, I think it's the FST statistic for like variation within certain, I guess, populations or groups exactly. within different areas. You can print, you can figure out what, what gene flow rates are and how many animals are migrating between habitats. Yeah, based on migrating for yeah. It's just fascinating stuff. And, and I think something you said, it, it, we'll get on to, I think, but I think we've kind of set a good baseline there that's understandable, like Ken said. But one thing, I, I know you don't do like large, necessarily like large, like phylogenetic, I guess, interfamilial studies. That's not necessarily your area. It's more at the no. organismal level, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things that you mentioned, like the neutral theory of evolution, that's interesting about that is when we rely on morphology for large phylogenies, right? We're missing a lot of the variation that is kind of neutrally selected. And so for, for people that might not understand why genetics is sort of looked at as a tool that's very powerful and in inferring phylogeny over time is because a lot of variation that isn't expressed morphologically, right? It is kind of maintained 
in the code of the organism that is right. an express. So I, that's just kind of an interesting point, I guess. But, but, but also with morphology, you know, you have the confounding factor of convergence. So similar environmental mm -hmm. conditions um, kind of fueling a similar morphotype. So they could be wholly unrelated, right? But morphologically be very similar. And so you wouldn't be able to elucidate that necessarily using strictly morphometrics. Yeah, that that's yeah, I think that that's a good point that and there's a lot of like someone asked, I guess the question we got a question we have viewer questions we'll get to but they asked about like what makes a trachomese different from a pseudomese and I think now with molecular methods that's pretty clear and it is kind of just those accumulations of point mutations i think right in 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 snips between what, what we see there but uh in the past it was not very obvious like graptomies and pseudomies had the same kind of number of i guess informative characters that were different between them before we had these techniques but right. uh yeah i mean so i guess we can i think that that's good for that um one of the things I know that we're all kind of interested, we've talked a lot about is, is megacephaly. I know I'm changing, the, <laughs> I'm changing the pace here. But, really? Um, who would have thought I had interest in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know what your experience with that is. And I know that we, we've talked about it in the past too. You've got some interesting theories behind like what might, or, or hypotheses behind what might cause that. I, I guess maybe you can expand upon maybe what you think there. Right. So, I mean, I've not, I've not studied megacephaly in any, um, any sort of capacity. It's just something that really fascinates me. Right. So there is a field called epigenetics or epigenomics where you can kind of actually see what some of these environmental drivers, um, how they affect. So our DNA has a little flexibility. Sometimes we can overexpress certain genes based on environmental cues. And that is kind of the crux of the field of epigenetics. Uh, and so I, I wrote a few postdoc proposals kind of wanting to investigate this, but I ended up getting uh, a job at Jacksonville State. Um, and that was always the end goal. So moving to an area that's not only close to home, but has incredible turtle diversity. Story for another day. Back to megacephaly. Uh, working with sternothrys and working with kinosternids, you cannot ignore megacephaly. And surprisingly, I mean, is present in the literature, but it's not something that's really been focused on a lot. And it's just so much fun, especially for me, as I got to travel around and sample sternothrys from across the range to look at these changes in morphology. And for instance, within razorback musterals, the populations, um, some of the montane populations, I won't say from where, because again, I don't want uh, uh, want them to be uh, post or anything. Not that I think anyone here watching this podcast would do such a thing. And uh, some of the populations had these just truly massive heads. And then of course the loggerheads um, and the strythnik musterals, just it's comical, right? Like how big, some of these uh, heads can get on these turtles. And it was interesting to me to study striped neck musk turtles in South Mississippi, having grown up in northeast or Northwest Georgia, because they were so fundamentally different. So in Northwest Georgia, we are, we do have karst topography. So it's limestone, it's calcium 
you know, if there's a lot of calcium in the water, you can support a really robust mollusk population, right? Because they need to make their, uh, their shells. And, um, you know, these turtles with these large heads can, well, they go hand in hand, you know, they have these large heads can crush these snails and, you know, exploit them within their, their habitat. But in South Mississippi, we don't have that. We have these little sandy creeks and mollusk population is virtually non-existent. And it was so funny to me to catch my first peltifer, my first striped neck bus turtles in Mississippi, because they had these teeny tiny heads. And so it started, that's kind of what kind of sparked this interest is that we actually knew so little about the populations of uh, peltifer, striped neck bus turtles from Mississippi and Louisiana, because one, they're not where most turtle biologists were trapping. Um, and they weren't well represented in, in museums. And so I had never seen them before. And so to see these little pea-headed varieties, like this is not Peltiver, what the hell is this? But, you know, it's really diet that's driving a lot of that morphology. And so that kind of started to um, get the ball rolling on some of my ideas on, you know, megacephaly and, and some of the drivers of it. Uh, and like I said, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but before I started my research in South Mississippi, on striped neck musk turtles, I think from the Pascagoula drainage, one, they weren't known from to occur in the Pascagoula drainage to like 1980. Uh, they were just thought to be, uh, to have basically taken an overland route to the Pearl from the Tom Bigby. But uh, there were four or five peltifer in the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science from Pascagoula tributaries. By the end of my dissertation, I caught over 200 from the Pascagoula. And so I, I got to get, you know, a much better idea of what the species looks like within the drainage. And it's because, of course, they're in these small tributaries. And uh, I, you know, got these morphological data sets that I'm still building now, comparing or trying to compare some of the morphologies between these drainages. But basically, those peltifer from the Pascagoula have these really tiny heads. I've did a diet study. They're eating mostly things like um, uh, aquatic insects, um, a few seeds, uh, but nothing that's really, you know, that crunchy versus those here in North Alabama and North Georgia are consuming primarily snails, uh, almost exclusively snails by some of the projects that have started up here. And they're getting these truly massive noggins. Now, the I guess underlying mechanism for this, uh, that's kind of something I'd love to investigate. Um, but uh, I, I'll let Jack, I know Jack probably wants to jump in this conversation, talk about, <laughs> talk about megacephaly. Uh, but it's just so fun. There's just something oh, so wow. endearing about a little tiny turtle with a big old head. He's getting antsy down here. It's like, it's, it's up. if there's anything that I want to like, to, Anything that piques my interest a lot, it, it megacephaly is just, it's just amazing. Like I didn't, I started learning that it was even a thing like five or six years ago or something. I started seeing these pictures online and of like the odoratus from Comal and things like that. And my, I'm like, what God. the hell am I looking at? And I'm like, how are people so nonchalant about this? I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like it would have, like, you don't see this in humans. Like I, that would be really, I don't know. It's just, I would think of comparisons like that. And uh, so I started looking for it around here. I'm like, all right, so if they're feeding, like if it can happen, if it's correlated to the diet, then technically I should be able to, if I find areas with high densities of clams or snails anywhere, I, I might be able to find something like that. 
So I'm, I'm used to finding just odoratus in ponds and lakes and just habitats that don't support high like densities of mollusks in any sense of the term. And uh, well, I started investigating a couple streams around here and I found one that is just like the river bed is just Asiatic clams, like the corbicula just cover it. Right. And uh, even then the, there's, there's only been like a couple individuals I've caught there and they have like, I caught one like three or four years ago that had a huge, like for an odoratus, it was, it was massive. And uh, I was absolutely losing my mind. My dad's like, what is going on with you? Why are you it's like, it's just a little musk turtle. I'm like, you understand. Like, and it just fueled the obsession just grows over time. Like, oh, I just, and it, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's always like you're chasing that next high. Like I want to get a turtle with an even bigger head. I'm always yes. looking for an even bigger head. So it always makes looking for them so much fun. Because occasionally, you know, you can know a population really well, but then all of a sudden you find this male that just appears older than time, or a female even, and they just had these stupid, stupid, huge heads with these massive alveolar plates that just, you, you're more familiar with the terminology, Jack. So what is it when, the, like, it almost like, I don't know, I wish I could pull up a photo that I took. You mean like, today. but it warps, right? Some of their alveolar plates just, like, warp. Like the... It's like on like the maxilla and like the dentary bone, like the bone itself, like the keratin just covers the bone. It's not the keratin overgrowing really. It's the bone itself is expanding and warping right. to form like a, it forms essentially a crushing surface. And uh, you actually see it. I mean, it's, it's present. It's like a phenomenon in worldwide. Like there's turtles around the world that. Exactly. Like even. Oh, you got Malayamis. Malayamis do the same thing. You're, they look like a cross between the Gratamese and a, a freaking uh, Stenothrus. And then you've got the the Reevesii complex. You've got what? Moramis, Reevesii, as well as Megacephalum. And so. Yeah. Just, and uh, yeah, the, they, they get ridiculously big heads over there. And the different, like, it's almost left, like people, I know captive keepers, they see that and they think it's something that's exclusive. They think it's like a genetic trait that. They don't think it has anything to do with the environment. They're like, oh, I need to get offspring of one of those turtles so they'll grow big heads. And then they'll get them, and they're just going to feed them, like, fish straps, and they don't get big heads. And they're like, what the hell? I was ripped off. And yeah. that's not at all. Like, you could you could take any Reeves eye, and if you feed it the right thing, it's, it's going to grow a head like that. And I've talked to – so y'all had Greg on uh, not long ago. One of the things I said that we should market is, like, we need to create some sort of turtle food with, like, a calcium carbonate, like a hard candy cover almost. That really makes these mustrels crunch because that way we get and could grow our own megacephalic. Uh, and that's another fascinating aspect to it because you find the juveniles in the wild and they look perfectly normal. But then so there's some ontogenetic shift, which has to be, I don't know, it'd be so fascinating to investigate that shift because not only does the head grow mm -hmm. and the, 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 the skull itself grow this shell has to morph around it. So the shell, which seems like this rigid structure, has to change shape. How does bone that is really like that? So it's just it's just so cool. With the like field of like epigenetics or something, I, I for a long time I didn't think there was really going to be a way to come up with a concrete answer or some sort of to get an idea of what actually really causes it. But over time, like you know, I really want to investigate this because I might be able to find some kind of answers for it. But yeah, this this is just a little representation here. It's a uh, a loggerhead musk turtle and a common musk turtle, and you can see that it's it's pretty ridiculous. Their body size probably wasn't all that different, but the heads and you, you yeah, see, when you look at the osteology, there it's just look at the depth of the head, how much it's increased on the loggerhead compared to the common. 
it gets so extreme. It's like it obscures their vision or something. Like there's doesn't it just keeps going until they get. Some of them can't even close their mouths. Like the the I've seen it with a uh, or like the dentary bone. It grows yeah. out to the point where they get an underbite and they can't shut properly. That's just they're like it's just the funniest looking appearance. And then can to bring you in. Like I love the syringa or like the the and the aquatica that get the little megacephaly. Yes, like, right. Bulldog urethra, and you're like, you're you're cute. You you try, try. <laughs> yeah, um, and the same thing with those salamanders. You know, we have CT scans of them, and you know, like just same thing in turtles. It's not only the musculature that becomes hypertrophied; it's also they grow bones too. So it's definitely something that epigenetics will have to answer. It's just yeah, amazing. I'd be curious to see if there's any like transgenerational inheritance of like these changes. Or I know that uh, Grover, you mentioned that like the like hatchlings or like the younger ones like appear normal. But I wonder if there's even like a you know some of these changes like increase susceptibility. Right. Because I know like generational inheritance. Sort of common garden experiment, right? Yeah. So to to grow them up and to feed them different diets. And in fact, Iverson did do that. Uh, he yeah, I was just about to bring that up. Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, take it away, Jack, because you probably well, can recall the statistics a little bit better. I remember he there was a population in like Arkansas or something. I think that was the state of common musk turtles that develop ridiculously large heads, like kind of like what you see in Texas. And uh, this is like a long time ago, too, that he that they took a group of like hatchlings from that population and a population from like a lentic system where they have what we consider normal sized heads and they raised them under identical conditions and they didn't like, they pretty much like proved that it's correlated directly to the diet because none of the ones grew, none of the, they, there was no difference in their head size when they fed the same diet. So that's essentially, I don't remember like specifics of it, but that's, that's the overall gist of what, right. what he found. But yeah, that was that, there's he has picked, there's a diagram there too of like the skulls because they have skulls of wild ones and they look like loggerhead skulls like they're so big and just dense that and it does it you don't really see but it on a lot of the juveniles until it takes a long time for that to develop right. like years, and that's the problem right is like so common garden experiment is called common garden right because it's mostly plants so you can you know sprinkle some seeds here and there and they grow and do the stuff within you know a year or two. Yeah. But to do a garden, common garden experiment with a long-lived organism is a much greater investment. And like you have to spend years, you know, making sure that you feed them exactly this much under exactly the same conditions. And like, where does one get a supply of snails sometimes, you know, like it requires just, an, if you're doing it wrong, you might mess up the whole experiment or something. So like you have it has to be perfect. And it's not even fully understand how, why it's like that in the wild. But I mean, I got lucky in the springs a couple of times when I would come up on uh, these loggerheads. And since they're so common, you get to witness behaviors you don't often see with other turtles. Like I would come up and I got to see a few of them feeding before we, we had to capture them. And uh, for a long time, I was under the impression that it wasn't, there wasn't as much of a, there's, there's almost like a technique to it. I didn't realize, like, I thought they would just grab it and just like crush it. And, and there was, and like aggressively and hastily, but they pick it up with their jaws like very gently and they have all the nerve endings in their plates. So they can, it's, they have a lot of like, they have a lot of feeling in those. And it's like this back and forth rolling and chattering. They, they do very slowly and efficiently. And it, it's like, it, it doesn't even make a huge mess. Like the, it's very efficient at, at extracting all of the, the meat from the, 
essentially right. the flesh from the snails. But you can see their muscles like twitching and moving as they do it. And it's like, I could just yeah. watch that all day. Like, it's just so interesting. So I had a, a student last semester looking at diet. Uh, she needed a, a one semester long project. And I was like, well, we'll look at diet and these turtles that I study. And of course, the day that y'all like left my house and went towards Florida, uh, I found this really like robust population. And I don't know, we ate that Mexican restaurant. It's literally right next to it. So uh, anyway, we were sampling turtles from the stream and we have a malacologist also on staff at Jacksonville State. And she is a delight. Uh, malacology is a study of mollusks. So she studies the freshwater snails of the region. That's a good and she's like, I was like, yeah, my turtles eat snails. She's like, well, she's like, I'd be really interested because I bet some pass through um, perfectly fine. She, I, she was almost insinuating like they couldn't possibly crush these snails. <laughs> and so I took her, I was like, is this kind of what you had in mind? I took her a fecal sample and all it is, is this, these crust alignia. And she's like, right. oh, they can actually crush them. Like, yeah, these things have the, you know, the structure, the wherewithal to actually achieve this. Uh, it's just, it's so cool. Uh, and then y'all, again, when you come back, I hope we find, um, this one female from this creek. So I like to pride myself and that I've caught my fair share of Peltiver. Uh, and I have a pretty robust data set and the largest Peltiver I've ever encountered are from Northwest Georgia with the occasional outlier in South Mississippi. That would be like, mm, 290, 295. That was a big Peltiver, like 295 grams. Days after y'all left in this stream, I found a 410 gram female. This is, I don't have, I don't have a single turtle in my data set of almost three or 400 Peltifer that's in the 300s. Okay. It was 295 and below. And then she just skips the entirety of the 300s. And she's like this freaking box turtle sized Peltifer from this nasty ass stream that runs through Jacksonville. It was awesome. It, but she's so big, like her head doesn't even look that big. Her head looks normal because she's already an enormous turtle. But she has the musculature to absolutely pulverize the snails. Her fecal samples were really fun. That's a weird That's statement. Awesome. You, you, you showed us pictures of that, right? Like yeah. I remember, like we were leaving, and you're like, "Oh, check this out!" I'm like, holy crap! It was all right there the whole time. It's like and when we I went. In, we were in that stream. We were just further in a section further down. So. It's, it's like when I was at, when Michael invited me out to California one time and we were looking for uh, the green sea turtles in the, like, I don't even know, like the rivers or something. And we didn't see anything for, I was, I was a little skeptical at first, if I was going to be honest, I was like, this doesn't seem right. And uh, then like a week later, I see all these videos of like dozens of green sea turtles. I'm like, what? Yeah, those are awesome. but yeah, that population is really interesting. They, uh, I saw about 15 individuals in there at one point. And it, I mean, you could literally reach down and, and, and touch them. It, the, I, I mean, not that you should. You shouldn't do that. But it got picked up by some. You should. Like, yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to mess with the sea turtles because there's right. a pretty heavy penalty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I oh. guess. Um, yeah. The megacephaly, though, it's an interesting topic. I think like we're pretty conditioned like you said, the high school biology class to think that, uh, that, that things either happen in real time as a response to something 
uh, I, I guess like the buildup of calluses is not something that's sort of genetic. It's more so if you just use this over and over again, you're going to get that accumulation of, I guess, dead skin um, or, or whatever happens there. But uh, it, I guess the the idea we were talking about this, Ken, when we, we visited UGA, but like phenotypic plasticity, the idea that things can kind of just change, but there's not necessarily a, a genetic basis for that maybe isn't always the case. I, and I think that the logic here, you can, I guess, step in if, if I'm missing something is that, you know, that, that eating more mollusks, there's something there that kind of institutes the a production of, of some sort of molecule, I guess, that would bind to, to uh, a cell membrane to institute kind of this transduction pathway that regulates the genetic expression. I, I mean, maybe that's kind of the epigenetic basis right for for what but it's it's this exposure to something in in real time that actually modulates how genes are expressed which is i mean it's just fascinating but it's not yeah like you said in in our genetics class in high school we thought everything was premeditated you have this gene is going to produce this phenotype but you know that's not nature's not that simple right so it's, it's it's really fascinating Recently in my like, my, like my senior AP bio class that I'm in, the teacher was bringing up, like we were, we would get, normally I would just like go through it, but then she was, she got to the point where we somehow got to like phenotypic plasticity and stuff. And she's like, why would you not stop talking about this? I'm like, well, I just don't, I don't know. It just relates a lot to my, to exactly what I'm interested in. So that was really, I don't know. But Is it, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's, I, we're we're coming up on time here. We try to keep it to an hour and a half because I think, gotcha, but gotcha, uh, you know, it's hard. But I I would say there there's one more topic that like if you could just touch on because I think it's pretty interesting. And then we didn't even hit half the questions, so we'll have to. I mean, it, my well, I mean, it, no, that's that's I I mean that just means we had a productive conversation that went in depth. I I think it's good. But what I'm thinking is maybe you said that there's a malacologist at at uh, JS JSU. That's correct. The okay, JSU. There's a malacologist. Maybe we at some point could organize a megacephaly specific podcast and also bring on the malacologist, so you two yeah, could have kind of two people. I mean, that'd be fun. But uh, well, we could see. I but uh, yeah. I, I guess I'm, her, her I'm, introduction to megacephaly is through me. Like she's she is not as familiar with the turtles as we are. And we're okay. not as familiar with the snails as she is. But one yeah. cool thing, do y'all follow Jim Godwin on Instagram? Yeah. yeah. So the snail that we have present here is Elimia Godwini, named after the legend himself. So it's the the rusty Elimia. <laughs> but when I found that out, I emailed, I was like, Jim, surely this snail is not named after you. And he sent me the manuscript of his description. And sure enough, the home or my now hometown Elimia was named for Jim Godwin. That's an that's pretty cool. That that would be a cool thing. But uh, I think that it's it's definitely warranted with the contributions that he's made. He he'd be a fun person to talk to as well. Oh, he's but so um, I'm curious. The last thing I guess topic we can just touch on might not have time to go real in depth. But the uh, the the Tom Bigby Tennessee exchange between map turtles again, just a ma a massive change in topic. But I think it's one of those things that people I think will it's just so interesting and and right. Uh, so the Tom Bigby, Tennessee Tom Bigby Waterway, for those who are not familiar with the rivers of the southeastern U.S., is a connection that was protested heavily by environmentalists. So the Tom Bigby River is, 
it flows, or so the Tom Baby River meets the Alabama River to form the Mobile River. Okay, so it's part of the Mobile River system. The Tennessee River, of course, is part of the Ohio-Mississippi River basin. So it goes through North Alabama, skirts Mississippi. And these people had this ingenious idea that by connecting those two systems, you could increase ship traffic up the Tom Bigby um, to the Midwest, uh, to the Great Lakes. So you could go from the Tom Bigby to the Tennessee, to the Mississippi, to the Great Lakes. And it was going to bring all this economic prosperity um, to the region that was otherwise pretty rural. So they moved more earth to make this connection between these two very distinct, very diverse river systems. Uh, in fact, the Tom Bigby was the most diverse warm water river in the world. But they excavated it, deepened it, channelized it, forged it with the Tennessee um, to create this new trade route. Didn't bring that much prosperity. It was fought every step of the way. They were like, but the, you know, like you're gonna ruin, you're gonna wreak ecological havoc. And they're like, no, money and jobs, you know, as folks are wont to do. Uh, and it came so very nearly to being stopped. So the reason I preface this is not only did we destroy the fish communities and provide this interchange for uh, fish and other aquatic fauna from two very distinct, again, very diverse river systems. We've actually documented the movement of gratmes, which are again, typically exemplified by uh, being drainage specific. We've seen them start to move through the Tom Baby waterway uh, into these quote unquote alien drainages. So we were uh, looking at the distribution and abundance of the Northern Matt Turtle, Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi had, has well, at the time, there were eight documented species within Mississippi. Great diversity. We have a lot of river systems. And we were following some anecdotal reports of um, uh, northern map turtles, Scratchamese Geographica in Mississippi uh, along the northeastern border. So Geographica is tied to like the Tennessee River system. And we only got a teeny, teeny, tiny portion of that in Mississippi. We did find a population, but literally it's in one stream the pipes in for about five kilometers into the state and they're abundant in there. There's another stream that has uh, kind of cuts through the state. That's a little bit longer, but we only got one or two individuals of the species in that. But the biggest finding from that study is that when we were doing these bridge surveys and uh, spotting scope surveys along the Tom Bigby, looking for these Northern map turtles, we actually found a, an Alabama map turtle in Lake Pickwick, which is a reservoir of the Tennessee river. So this adult female had, um, you know, was probably born there, but at some point in time, Polkra has moved up through the Tom Baby waterway into the Tennessee. And likewise, Wachatensis, which is uh, restricted, at least in Mississippi, to the Tennessee River drainage, had moved down into the upper Tom Bigby. And whether or not, say, Wachatensis could hybridize with the other microcephalic, which is the state-protected black-knobbed, Nigranota, we don't know. We did find what we believe are intermediate forms. So you have this faunal exchange between, again, these two distinct river drainages. And it's, you know, just another testament to shouldn't have been done. And uh, Luke Pearson, who y'all should have on at some point to talk alligator snapping turtles, uh, 
with all the modifications of the Tom Bigby, the, the channelization and the, the large red bars they put on it to facilitate boat traffic, uh, you, he worked his ass off and got like, uh, I think it might have been 20-something alligator snapping turtles from the Tom Bigby in Mississippi. So they just decimated populations of other riverine turtles. I think that's a, like, we could, we could talk about that kind of like the effect of supposedly economically like beneficial things on different river systems and how it's people have fallen into that trap. Like the general population doesn't see that as an issue. They're like, Oh no, we're building a dam. We're going to create a reservoir or we're going to do hydroelectric power. And that's so eco-friendly. I'm like, eh, it's kind of the exact opposite of that. <laughs> you it just could have, it could have been better. You could have hydroelectricity um, and not ruin uh, riverine fauna, right? It's just that they didn't, there was no Environmental Protection Act at the time. They didn't care. Who cares about snails? Who cares about biodiversity? Biodiversity is a very young field. Um, the, this passion, you know, for uh, species diversity is only dates back maybe 40 or 50 years. The coin, the term was actually coined, I think, in the 1970s or 1980s. Uh, and so it's just not a priority on I many people, uh, many people's lists, much less politicians, right? They're all about, you know, getting the money. Um, and, and unfortunately, Alabama, we love Alabama. We love its diversity, but we are a very conservative state and we won't get on any political tangents here. Um, but it just is kind of unfortunate that one of the most biodiverse states in the country is so conservative and that they really don't have any sort of, um, appreciation for the diversity that we do have here and they would much rather ditch and drain and make something like the tom baby waterway than have the most biodiverse temperate river in the world like and, yeah and the reason that this is bad too kind of goes back to what you were saying about kind of i guess maladaptive alleles right if you've got hybrids it could mess up the the native black knob sawbex right or, or i guess can you comment on like why would this why is this something we should be concerned about? Uh, sure, some of it can be maladapted, but also, you know, these are two distinct species and you're muddying their genetics. And mm -hmm. so one of them, especially, well, the black knob is state listed in Mississippi. So it's a, it's a rare species. Rare. It's probably actually more abundant than they think. But um, you now have these genetically impure um, individuals. Kind of a more extreme example of it would be depressus. And so Peter Scott's done some great work on, uh, he did some great work for his dissertation studying this contact zone between Peltifer and depressus, depressus being the flattened must turtle. Critically endangered, has again uh, uh, suffered immensely from pollution, runoff, sedimentation, and also the construction of reservoirs. This is a loaded, again, must turtle. But the striped neck musk turtle has been able to invade portions of the flattened musk turtle's range uh, because they're a little more lenient in their habitat preferences. So they can kind of move up these reservoirs. So uh, historically, the fall line was kind of the demarcation between striped neck musk turtles and flattened musk turtles. But now we've kind of allowed striped necks to move up. And what they've done is there's actually one river uh, in Alabama, where there's been hybridization between the flattened mustard, which is critically endangered, federally protected, uh, with the genetics of striped neck mustarels. And so we've essentially lost this entire population as a hybrid swarm. And we can actually, well, I say we, Peter, uh, was able to kind of backdate it using molecular clocks to say, okay, this is 
coincides pretty much to when this reservoir was built because it's a relatively recent um, uh, hybridization event. So it's, it's just one of those things where you can lose the genetic integrity of an endemic species, right? Yeah. Sorry to bring everything back. Well, the, the, the geographic fall line is an interesting thing to, to bring up because Gary. there's a, like a lot of it, so it for a while it felt like the general like consensus is like people just assumed it was some magical barrier where some species they're like oh they just don't cross it because because they just don't like there wasn't really reasoning for that like with alligator snapping turtles like oh they don't cross the fall line or they don't go up into these high elevation creeks and thank god that trappers didn't thank god the trappers assumed that and yeah. they didn't trap a lot of these areas that we recently discovered uh have perfectly abundant populations because it, it makes perfect sense the habitat's the same if you have an understanding of the turtle uh it doesn't really matter it, it matters more about the what like stuff for their life history like just because the elevation right. is slightly different is not going to completely prevent them from invading right. or spreading up into those tributaries but so yeah. yeah, I mean that's a whole other discussion. There's a lot of cool stuff oh, yeah. online. But Michael, Michael had mentioned we're getting kind of close on time, so I'm gonna yeah. pass the ball back to him. Uh, let yeah. him know if tie up. Well, that, yeah, we just like to keep it to around an hour and thirty, but it's tough a lot of times just because we've got right. um, very interesting people, so it's tough to keep it uh, to a certain uh, limit here. But I guess uh, we've got like two little things that we do at the end. We do a little. Um, kind of a trivia volley here uh, and like four or five questions just for fun. The, the kind of point here is to just bring up stuff that's like random. And as Carl Franklin put it on a past episode, it showcases how useless we are in terms of some of the knowledge that we have, all wow. of us. So uh, it just, this is stuff that's like interesting for turtle people um, and, and stuff that you might not hear in other discussions. So I guess we can give a second to do that. Um, first though, we've got some listener questions. I don't know okay. if Jason or someone has those. I could read the one from, uh, but yeah, you guys, I think there's several of them, right? Yeah, we could just it's like shoot three. them off here. Yeah, so I will say let's try to keep the answers. Like, let's do like a rapid fire kind of thing. Not, not, yeah, so let, let's just do these. So I guess, yeah, go ahead, guys, if you've got those. Uh, Jack, maybe you want to go first because I know you've got. Yeah, this is, let me, hold on, let me find <coughs> the screenshot of this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this question is from Paul Cuneo, who asked, uh, it's a megacephaly kind of question. He said, do northern diamondback terrapins, they lack the same tendency of megacephaly compared to the Texans and like Louisiana ones for any specific reason? Or is it like dietary? We, we pretty much answered that, but that's kind of that's the question he asked. Well, you could, you could, I mean, I don't know if his geared towards me, but you would be able to speak more about the diet of, yeah. say, your terrapins in Delaware. Because even, I mean, you've pointed this out to me and mentioned it several times in your post before, that you don't see the degree of megacephaly that you do see no. along Louisiana, Mississippi coast, as you do up um, in the Northeast. And even along the Georgia coast, we really don't get the megacephaly that you see along the Gulf Coast. This is a, a this came from a full-size female in, like, Delaware. Like, that's not a very, very large head. That's probably a, like, barely over, I don't know, like 80 millimeters or something. Like, it's not that wide. But you get some, like, or no, no, it's not 80 millimeters. What am I thinking? It's probably way less than that. But, uh, the, like, the the head width on the, tur like, the Piliata and, uh, what is it, Litteralis, which are genetically and morphologically almost the same thing, but that's topic for another thing. Uh, 
their head width is insane. It's it's the like the degree of megacephaly they exhibit. It's almost it proportionally it might be more extreme than even Barber's map turtles or something like because they're like head width the carapace length ratio, which I don't know if that's ever used. I just kind of figured that out on my own. It's like you can get some with heads around two, two and a half, like two to two and a half inches, while their carapace is only like six and a half to nine inches. And nine inches is big. Most are less than eight. And like that's that's almost that's a head almost the same size as a barber's map turtle on a body that's significantly smaller. And people that are like those who are used to seeing uh, the terrapins on the Gulf Coast. They, whenever I see pictures they upload, I'm like, holy crap. Like, they don't look like that at all up here. Like, it looks like, like up here, they have heads no different really than sliders and cooters in, in their size. I mean, yeah, they have, it's like a crushing surface, like, but it's not really expanded. It's just like, it's just there. I, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Give I us a it's... summary sentence of like, of what you think. Just wrap it's it up for Paul. That's what it is. It's the, it's the diet, 100%. Because, they're i'll be quick with this the the ones on the gulf coast they're feeding i read the like this this 200 page like like comprehensive paper published by like the texas dnr or something and they did a dietary study and they found that the ones in texas the females feed on these uh, these two species of, of uh, mussels they're not feeding on snails they're feeding on mussels and i'm like okay that's got to be what the difference is because on the atlantic coast the marshes it's are full of periwinkles. periwinkles yeah and I find that odd. I'm like, well, the periwinkles are like bigger versions of the lamia snails. So you'd think that would be causing really large heads, but apparently not. So the females here feed on those snails and their heads don't really, it's never really significantly expanded while the females, and even, I think it goes all the way to the ornates and like the Apalachicola, like the mouth of those rivers, they get like, they have huge heads too. I think they're all feeding on a different source in that area compared to the, the Northeast. Yes. Okay. So, I say that's a good summary for that. All right. Yeah. Okay. The next. Let's get that next question going here. Whoever wants to take that. Yeah, I couldn't find them. So, so um, Jack, if you have them up, you just want to like the, uh, <coughs> the other two. I think that you said we had. Um, Michael, where'd you put them? Are they in the? Are they in drive? Because uh, I only have the one. I can my... pull them out. I, I have a screenshot from the. Because um, I, I don't have access to the Instagram account because my thing still doesn't let me do that. So, okay, I'll, I'll pull them up. I took a screenshot at some point when it was there. I can I can read them off. Uh, I I'll read them off one sec. Uh, I have here, I have it pulled up now. Okay, Ken. Yeah, you read yeah, them off. Yeah. All right. This this second one. Um. I'm not sure if we should answer this one. Uh, reputable loggerhead and Peltzer breeders. I'm not sure if that falls in the scope of this podcast. I actually don't know. Uh, like, I don't know anyone who really breeds them. I'm not so uh, not that I have anything against it. I just don't really have a foot in the door with uh, the captives uh, or the captive yeah. side of, of turtle biology. That might be a question for Greg. He might he might know that. Greg, know yeah, Greg, 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 Greg knows that. Reach out to Greg's Turtle Haven for. Uh, whoever I'm not sure who said that, but for whoever said that, reach out to. We had him on. You can find his account. Uh, okay, the, the, there are a few more, I think. So, yeah, I got I got one more on my screen. Um, somebody asked about the ontogenic change in the diet of common snapping turtles. Specifically, what ontogenic changes? 
I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mean, uh, I mean, as they grow, of course, their their date size is going to be getting larger so they can take in different right. kinds of prey items. I think that they're still pretty much a generalist from the time they hatch to the time they're an adult. I, consu- um, I consulted the Styermark. I think it was the first other Styermark, the book that they wrote for that question specifically, like the diet section. And he mentions in there that it's like mostly carnivorous, like you said, from the time that they're hatching to when they get. But there's certain ones like there was one that they studied that essentially just ate duckweed for a whole summer. And but that was kind of an outlier. So there's like all across the board and they eat everything from other turtles to pretty much anything you can imagine. (laughs) So very, very diet. Yeah, Kalijah are like the ultimate monster. They they don't care. They'll eat anything. They're, They're like the ultimate definition of a turtle generalist or I, I think greg greg say, he says they're like the turtle version of a monitor like they're just they're just predatory and there's really not anything they won't eat unless they just they can't i do recall something special about them though um there's a study that was it's quite i think it's quite a dated study but they they try to imprint um different diet items on these juvenile snapping turtles and it, you know works like if you give oh, really? some bloodworms, yeah. When they grow up, they'll still eat bloodworms. They had a preference towards that. That's actually that's really right. Cool. Yeah. That's really hey, really I'll be right back, guys. Sorry to interrupt y'all's podcast. No problem. Oh, that's fine. We'll, we'll just cut it out if we need to. Well, we, we can just get to the next question, the last one, and we'll do that quick because that, that that's fine. And then for the uh, trivia, do we want to maybe try and keep it to like three questions on each side? Because like, sure, let's. We're yeah, we're yeah, approaching I an agree. hour thirty. Let's do it. Okay. The last question, Ken, do you have that one up? No, I only, that's the last question that I see. Oh, I, okay. I don't know if we, maybe I was, I was dealing with it. Well, there was one I got that was, maybe they texted it, but it was taxonomically what makes a turtle a trachinese or a pseudomies. Oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, we kind of talked about yeah, that. Yeah, didn't so we kind of touch yeah. on that a bit? Or- yeah, I would, yeah, I would say that there's a good deal of different, a lot of it's in the jaw, the, the structure of the cusps. I think that sliders typically have more of a flat. They, they lack the cusps on the maxilla, the anterior cusp, I guess the, the, the alveolar plates on sliders. I know from, I know from experience, I know from experience and from a scar on my finger that they have really, really pronounced cut exterior cusps. Yeah. But. They're more flat though. Like cooters have the denticles in the jaws. There's a lot more going on there. Yeah. And, I guess sliders too have kind of more of a, a rounded lower jaw versus like cooters. It's more flat, I guess. That's kind of a minute detail. But then, yeah, kind of genetically is kind of where a lot of that work goes now. And just using, I, uh, I think that there was work that looked at trying to figure out what characters are, I guess, homologous or synapomorphies where it's something that's derived character from a common ancestor versus convergence like we were talking about that was tough to do with just morphology because you're kind of just speculating essentially based on what an outgroup has so those early studies it's kind of just toss up but it's uh there's some morphological differences but the genetics kind of is is the thing that makes that the most reliable from what the data we have now because we have and more morphological characters so there's a good deal of difference uh, okay, let's get to that trivia. So, all right. I so I don't know if you have like we're gonna do three questions. Okay. Uh, and I guess uh, I so I you can pick for this. I don't know if you want us to ask you questions or you can just ask us three. It works either way. Uh, How about well, y'all start with asking me 
a question, and we'll see where we go from there. It's going to go I, back and forth. I was previously with this trivia question or trivia round looks like. Okay, in All a few right. steps, prove the neutral theory of evolution. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, God. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> no, no. We're having some technical difficulties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, that, I, you, get um, blocked, you get blocked on all social media. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I, that's going to be Grover's question now. The, uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, no, so it's just turtle-related questions, too. So like, right. we'll do a Do we want – so we'll each ask we'll, – us four will ask him three and he'll ask us three, I guess. That works. So we can start this off. Let's just text me. I've got one. So if you guys, I can just go now and then you guys can text. Yeah, you go, you go. Yeah, like, a lot of okay. these aren't premeditated. I can't guarantee you I can come up with three total questions. It's kind of like never have you ever. You're like, never have I ever. And you can't think of something you hadn't done. Maybe I'll yeah, too young yeah. in that game, but it is a game some people play. Well, I, yeah, we, I was like I, involved we, in a church group back in the day, and like for whatever reason, like they'd always play that at any sort of gathering. It's like, and it's hard to come up with something. Yeah. It's like, what's something I'm not done that other people would have done? Yeah. So, but let me hear your question, Michael. Okay, so it's again the goal is to be a little obscure. Like we're not taking points here. So my question was. This is inspired by something I was I was going back through for the, the Georgia interviews, actually. Um, of course, this is somewhat – there's a lot of the, – but here. But how many roughly protein-coding genes do we think there are in the painted turtle genome? <laughs> what the hell? I, I, I probably couldn't even get you within an order of magnitude, Michael. The okay. Time. That um, might have been – Okay, hold on. I'm going to use like my psychic powers. It, it's similar say... to humans. I believe it's similar to humans. The most oh, recent. Michael, I know nothing about people. Don't oh. give me that. Um, <laughs> if I had to give you a ballpark, I'm going to say 9,432. No, 9, uh, so the, the, where I'm getting this was from the, the Schaefer, Brad, uh, Dr. Brad Schaefer, UCLA. They yeah. did that, that paper. They estimate it was about 22,000. I think it was like 21,700. So okay, it's, okay, okay. it's a good deal. But yeah, no, that's again, super obscure, but just. That's a, that's a touch obscure, Michael. Yeah. A little bit, but that's okay. That's fine though. You can hit us with it with one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess your go. <laughs> we, oh, my go? I, I mean, we can um, give you one. I don't want to give you anything like that. Let's see what I can do. Um. I don't have any that <laughs> I, I don't have any like off the top of my head. Give me another one and I'll keep thinking. Have y'all come yeah. up with one, Jack? Jason, yeah, I got Ken? one for you. Uh, uh, like what bomb qualities? Hold up. Let's, how about we do four? I want to get one in too. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we could probably go here again. You um, came up with your question first. Do you want to do yours? Sure. And then, uh, All right. Go from there. The cup. The Cumberland and Western Red-Eared Sliders differ from the other slider subspecies based on which genetic marker? Jesus. So what genetic marker did they use to like look at the differences between those? I know there's a paper that used yes. microsatellites to differentiate them. Um, but there was another study that came out recently. I can't remember if they used genomic techniques, though. Did, they, did the more recent one? Is, I, won't, I won't comment on their paper. Um, I will say that their sampling was a little skewed uh, towards where the TSA conferences had been held. So they had like some South Carolina samples, some Fort Worth samples, and then 
forget where. Oh, and some New Orleans samples with little representation from other places. Um, but have I at all touched on anything from the paper to which you reference? Yes. Okay. So which genetic marker, what do you say? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go microsatellite. I remember there was one. Yeah, yeah. Satellites. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, the 2020 paper by Van Berger. Right. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't say I'm aware of any other new papers that came out using nuclear DNA or, you know, mitochondrial DNA, but it's what we expect based on mitochondrial satellites being the fastest evolving. Yeah, I, was marker. that the one that had the shady distribution or the shady sampling? I, I, I think so. I th yeah, I Michael. Think yeah, so. I think Michael brought that up. So. Okay, uh, let's go to the next one. That was a that was a good one. That's All right. Uh, so you can uh, go. Yeah, we... Unless you want got one, Grover. Uh, I've got one from the recent literature, so y'all probably come up with this one. It's true false, so you'll probably get it right. But turtles are strictly oviparous. This is interesting. I, so I, I'm thinking. I'm kind of catching you. You're kind of like, I can make you wrong either way. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's always like some obscure like tax yeah, like, yeah. Know, species that's just slightly different, like in any sort of a group of animals that you look into. So with some of these questions, it's like, you think you know it, but then it's like, there could be just something that, you, you know, something down in like South America that you had no clue existed that, you know, Not operated South Africa. Did y'all see Kukling's paper come out earlier this year? No. So the answer uh, is no. So <laughs> the answer is yes and no. So there are okay. these observations that they made on Tricina, angulata. So the angulated tortoise in South Africa. And during a drought year, and this paper is really interesting, uh, they found, or they were monitoring this captive population. It was very hot, did not rain very much. And these turtles lay like one or two eggs monthly or bi-monthly. And sometimes they have egg retention, um, depending, I guess, on environmental conditions. Well, there are a number of instances where they found eggs on the surface of this enclosure. And they were like, huh, that's weird because they kind of, you know, females don't dig the best nest, but they generally lay them underground um, or at least under some leaf litter. And so they found these eggs just out and about. And they know that they were laid within a day because they would walk through the enclosure, feed and water, etc. And they were going to let nature take its course. So they just kind of left it out there. Maybe the turtles will eat it. It'll fry. A bird will come get it. Within 48 hours, they saw that it started to hatch. And so they pick it up, they bring it in, and it pips and hatches into a developed tortoise. And now this was not an isolated instance. They saw another instance of this back in the 90s. And so what they speculate is that the females are actually able to retain these eggs and that there is embryonic development and that they lay the eggs shortly before hatching. So maybe they can detect or feel that that baby about to pip and then they lay the egg. So I was going to get you either way. They do still lay an egg, but technically they retain it. And it is somewhat of a form of viviparity, if not ovoviviparity, if you kind of buy into that. So that was kind of intentional on my end. That's actually awesome. I, I didn't know about that that's at cool. all. That's, yeah, that's look at the paper. It's very short because it's one of those things where it's anecdotal, right? But it's still important to get those out there so that we just know to have it on our radar. We we are stuck in this mindset that they are oviparous, right? They only lay eggs, which is true. But, you know, unless you're actually monitoring when the less nest was laid, 
uh, there could actually be embryonic development. And that would be huge for these potentially tortoises like Tresina that are going to be negatively affected by climate change with drier conditions. So it might make more sense for them to retain those eggs and produce uh, live young that are a little more precocious than take the risk of that egg uh, dehydrating over time. So relatively recent publication, January 2022, I believe. Uh, by Dr. I was, <laughs> I was thinking it could also be a, like a, maybe an adaptation for calcium retention. You know, maybe if, you know, based on these environmental factors, you know, the less, you know, less marine right. seashells there and that they have to like retain calcium. Well, and how great would it be if freaking sea turtles could just be viviparous, you know, retain those eggs yeah. until, you know, drop them in the water, have them hatch a la like Coretta Achilles or something, you know? So, you know, when you put Coretta Achilles eggs in water, they'll, they'll hatch. It'd be great if sea turtles could do that and just kind of bypass that whole coming to land and experiencing this predator type thing for people. Now the question is, can we induce viviparity in, in turtles? Right. But uh, have some zombie turtles. It gets yeah. out of hand. All of a sudden, the world's overpopulated with turtles. That's a world I want to live in. <laughs> All right, let's get to the next one going here. All right, I uh, head out right. Minute, so. so the next one uh, with you being you know like a bit of a map turtle guy yourself. Uh, what are two map turtle species uh, that occur in Ohio? That occur in Ohio. So you should yeah. have. Uh, let's see. I know you have Geographica. Yep. And then I think y'all just barely get some Wachitensis. Correct. You got it right on the nail right there. I believe you can find the Wach. Uh, I don't want to try and butcher the name here, but I believe you can find them in like bits of Southern Ohio. I know like, I think it was last week we talked about, uh, like, I think it's kind of like a similar case with the uh, soft shell turtles because like you have the spi uh, spiny soft shells, which are like some, like just overall like well distributed and then yeah, very cosmopolitan uh, with the uh, smooth soft shells you can them in southern ohio as well so you know there you go we aren't keeping track of score but that'd be, be a point either way i feel like i got two out of three which is passing yeah it's, yeah i mean that's all oh, you gotta yeah, do yeah, for yeah, a yeah, lot of stuff <laughs> grover hit us with a few more and, and we'll just get we'll just get them going what's that hit us with a few more questions so yeah oh man so you put me on the spot again um let me think let me think let me think we can do our last one if you want to think oh y'all have one more okay yeah i mean i know i, I don't know well, i have to mm -hmm. concoct one. So, oh, see oh, it's exactly. hard it's hard to be okay. put on the spot um i'm trying to think of a fun one uh give me a species that has parental care there's multiple I guess uh, Minoria would be one. Minoria, you say? Yeah. It's like somewhat, I guess. Like they build a nest and protect it. So that, that kind of counts. Okay. So Michael has Minoria. Uh, someone give me another one. So it's been – so this was speculative, but Rhina Clemmies, there's one documentation of potential a female protecting an egg. I don't know if that really counts. Okay, okay. Also, I mean, so gophers – uh, here in the Southeast, yeah. there's been documented cases of female aggression towards potential nest predators. But also, I was kind of going for Podonymus in South America, right? Oh. Where the females communicate with the offspring. Oh, okay. And yeah. Try yeah. to lead them to these productive foraging grounds. It's one of my fun yeah. facts I like to give people. Yeah, that's a good That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Uh, Jack, I don't know if you got one. Let's see. Okay, Grover, if you got one more, we can balance it out here. You could get three. 
Jack's got on the spot because we, we gotta gotta wrap this thing up. Jack gotta you know come up with something off. All right. Um, have to give me a sec. <laughs> He's right, on the I'm just trying to think of anything like uh all right, we gotta wrap right, it up. Some dude. simple right, tasks. Right, I'll, I'll just like say something. Give me an intrageneric hybrid. Um oh you can you've actually found I, something now, that's the thing. So like intra or inter? Intergeneric okay. hybrid. There's Ken. there's several. I'm just trying to come up with stuff off the top of my head. I just well, think cool. there's there's trachomies and pseudomies and captives. Okay. Um, yeah, macro macrochilies and Calidra. We talked about. Oh, that that's right. Y'all talked about that one. Yes. Um, I found I think a pseudomies, pseudomies gratomies. Yes, that's right. And yeah. pseudomies and uh, sorry, gratomies and trachomies as well. So there's some in Indiana um, that were hybrids of sliders and northern maps. I just think, and then and then sea turtles, of course, right? So there's a few intergeneric hybrids of sea turtles. To say, this is probably an easy question, but what is the largest like? What is the largest turtle in the world that that exhibits uh, like a form of megacephaly and is durophagus? Largest turtle in the world that exhibits megacephaly and is durophagus. I'd probably go with Macrochilus swaniensis. I was going to say the loggerhead sea turtle. Ah, fuck. okay. Damn it. <laughs> I mean, gosh darn it, folks. Well, <laughs> like, I didn't like. Let me explain. Like, I know it, it may not say they might like. Oh, they just have a large right. head. But the more no, you look I, into it. If you see the skulls of some of the biggest ones, it's the same features. Like the biggest males, they reach a cap in their body size, but their heads keep getting bigger. Like right. Some and then the oldest... you do, like, if you are on iNaturalist at all, I love geeking out on those. And, like, you'll be like, that's a pathetic loggerhead. But I like what you did, Jack, because I don't know if y'all have seen, what is it, Anchorman, where it's like they were talking about things they love. And the guy's like, I love lamp. I feel like you just looked at the loggerhead skull in the back of my camera here and were like, give me the largest megacephalic turtle in the world. They also, I think they're the only turtle that could pretty could have, that potentially has a stronger bite force than the alligator snapping turtle. I've, I've, I've seen I've skulls, the skulls that some of the skulls at Pritchard's and some of the skulls I've seen on my own time have uh, like they're, they're absolutely massive and like the supraoccipital crest, it's it, like it's twisted and warped in a lot of the same ways you see with musk turtles. Like even right. musk turtles, like sometimes the crest is asymmetrical and it's like twisted to one side. And on the biggest loggerhead skulls, you kind of see a lot of the same overgrowth. I, and I do love them. And they got the little flippers, too. So, like, it's, they're like they're, they're bottom crawlers. They're like bottom walking sea turtles. They're like, and the there's, of course, that cool video that went around for a while where there's one eating a whelk. And then they use a little bit of forest perspective with the scuba diver behind it, but it's still a very impressive turtle. And to hear the crushing of a whelk was really just like, oh. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want one of them to get a hold of my hand or something. Yeah, you think an alligator snapping turtle's bad? I would not want to yeah. mess with that. I, but I think I was gonna say I completely freaking forgot. Well, their body weight can be three hundred and fifty pounds or more. So oh yeah, I think there's they, I think there's some that are way bigger than that. Um, yeah, I think the, there's some records that they're actually the second large. So like I think Ernst and Lubbage, uh, and you know their classic textbook on turtles state that the second largest species of sea turtle is the loggerhead. I was like, is that that's debatable, but it's yeah, debatable, right? Because there was like some specimen that was referenced that weighed some inordinate amount. Like, like 1200 pounds or something. Like, yeah. 
I've never seen or heard of one over like the 400 pound range. Like, you never know. Like it, there, there really could have been a 1200 pound loggerhead would have like an 18 inch wide skull or something. Like, could you imagine uh, if that was proven, that would be like that bite force is on par with crocodilians. Like that's just ridiculous. But, I'd love to see it. All right, Grover, if you got one more, we can balance it out or we can. Well, let's just round it out. I think I, I gave y'all three. I think y'all asked me for three. I gave you three. Yeah. All right. So and I know cool. we, we were already crunched on time at the beginning or before all yeah. that. So we're we're not. I mean, yeah, we 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 just try to keep. But you know, people, I think, will will really enjoy it. No, well, no, tell them to no. tell them to send me some of these. I'd like to, uh, and I'll be honest about it. I won't look up answers. So DM <laughs> me on Instagram or something. And give me your best rhetorical questions. All right, there you go. Yeah, and I guess I'll just I challenge. Out. I got I got James Terrell waiting for me at like ten minutes away to go to Waterland Tub headquarters. So, ah, <laughs> awesome. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's been amazing to to have you on, Grover. Thanks for coming on and Always taking. Always fun to talk turtles. Anytime. Yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah, for you. That was, on your day, if we so. have time, yeah, thanks for coming on. Some of us will have to visit. Like, we'll have to go look for get some peltifer and. Absolutely. I have better couches and an actual spare bedroom now. So the house has changed a lot since y'all were here. Yeah, we're, and we're set on the couch. <laughs> we're uh, gonna, I got rid of that sectional. That thing was an atrocity. I think most of us are going to be in the Southeast, too, for the net. Well, four years. Oh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in Florida. If you need any help for any projects, you know who to call. I do. I do. <laughs> we, we will come down. So. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been, it's been a pleasure. I think like I, I speak for all of us for, for oh, sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, so, uh, this has been great. Uh, again, we are really grateful for our sponsors of this, the turtle room, and hopefully we'll create some new kind of sponsors coming up there. Also, uh, just a kind of a cool piece of information, uh, the international herbological symposium, talk about this next episode but we're probably going to do potentially a live broadcast there uh but that's kind of still up in the air so we might be doing some a live show so if you're going to be attending that make sure to kind of put that down in your radar but thanks a ton grover uh i'm gonna yeah. end yeah so thank you Absolutely. and oh yeah you can you can find grover you want to mention your social media just so oh yeah, yeah. Can... i mean if you if you like turtles uh i have an instagram at grover brown that all I do is post pictures of turtles. So yeah. there we go. All right. Awesome. awesome. See you, everyone.